When I started at Tyndale in 1995, I had 65 students in a spring summer course, History of Christianity, and halfway through the course, the dean at the time, who was my mentor as well, a man I loved deeply, stopped me before class started and said, Donald, tomorrow morning we're going to be in receivership. We won't be able to pay you. I had not received any payment yet. But would you consider teaching the, the students because they've already paid for the course? That's my introduction to teaching at, at Tyndale on a more permanent basis. And the miracle is, we had, no, well, we had no idea what was going to happen in the fall, but when I walked in, because I took over history, I, I'm not a big institutional person, and so I didn't want to be full-time uh, at that point, and it, it hadn't had a good introduction. Uh, but in the fall, I had over 100 students show up in September to t take history of Christianity. I still, that still takes my breath away when I think about that. Uh, the faith that was exhibited by those students signing up and coming uh, again in September. But they did get their marks for the summer course. My text that I want to use today uh, is from Matthew chapter four, uh, 13, and it's verse uh, 52. It says this, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his, store, his storeroom new treasures as well as old. As we look to the future and as we think about where we go, one of the things I want to suggest to us is we bring out of our, out of our storeroom the old as well as the new, and the old helps us understand how we move forward. And so I want to talk about William Tyndale today. What's in a name? Names are important. Historically, names help us understand. We rename people when they come of age. And names are significant to understand who the person is. But in the 20, late 20th and early 21st century, names simply tell you that you were born in a certain point when that name was popular. Because there was a particular star of some sort who has allowed us to use their name. And so there are not a lot of Donalds around, and sometimes I get embarrassed about the Donalds that are out there. But <laughs> my name is from a generation. And you don't get Donalds anymore because that was a generation. We, we named this institution. We named this institution first Toronto. It was Toronto... Uh, Toronto Bible College, let's keep the short forms, and London College of Bible and Mission. Names were, for this school, first and foremost about where we were located. They were to place us. Then we, when they came together, we became Ontario the Bible College and Theological Seminary. Again, broadening our understanding of who we are and where we are located. But then, as we reached the end of the 20th century, we began to realize we need a Canadian seminary, we need a Canadian university which thinks big picture and understands if we are going to be truly Canadian, we will actually touch the world because the world is here. We have networks, we have familial ties to every corner of the world. So we needed a new name. We're also transdenominational, so we needed a name which was not tied in with a particular community. And so Lynn Smith came up with this name, Tyndale. William Tyndale is not connected with any particular denominational tradition. He is unique in history as being a towering figure who, does, who cannot be claimed by anybody. So we claimed him. <laughs> but he's, he, mar he marks some things for us. And I want to tell you a bit of his story. And I want to tell you his story in light of helping you understand why we chose the name. And understanding why we chose the name, hopefully that will help you understand what we want to be as a school. 
What are we saying about who we are, about our values, about our dreams, our aspirations for us as faculty, us as staff, us as students, that how, as we move out into the world out and live out the kingdom of God in, the, in our neighborhoods, what kind of people will we be if we carry the name Tyndale? So Tyndale is a remarkable man. He signals some things for us. First of all, William Tyndale is from an obscure place. He comes from the Cotswolds, northern England. Agricultural area, sheep farming. But ironically, even though it was a sheep farming neighborhood, it was a place where people came because merchants from all across Europe came there to buy wool. Days of the great cloth trade. And so as a schoolboy, he began to encounter people from all different parts of Europe. But William Tyndale was a precocious child, like some of you here. By the time he was 12, he was off to Magdalen Hall in Oxford. And Magdalen was the center of the new learning, the new humanism that was sweeping Europe, led by people like Erasmus and John Collette. And they had all been, they'd both been at, at Magdalen at different points. By 1515, he had his master's degree. And a year after, John Fox in his Book of Martyrs says that uh, Tyndale went to Cambridge because it was more amenable to Lutheran ideas. And there he did what many of you have done. He studied Greek. He also studied Hebrew, Latin, Italian, Spanish, French, German. So he became fluent in eight languages, seven as well as English. And like all university students when they graduate, he graduated to underemployment. Now, he graduated with a good job in terms of money, but no challenge. So he became a tutor to John Walsh's kids. They're young, they're just, yeah, they would not be barely school age. So he's tutored to them, so it doesn't require much of him. So Tyndale has a choice. He can hang out, he can play games, he can have fun, he can enjoy the woods, he can do all of those kind of things that come with, with the position of being John Walsh's uh, children's tutor, or he could become and continue to be disciplined as a thinker. Job's job was not challenging, but he was inquisitive. And Walsh had a large library. Tyndale used it, began to preach in the neighborhood, and he began to work with the Greek New Testament that Erasmus had produced in 1516. That got him in trouble. Reading the Greek New Testament always gets you in trouble. So Walsh entertained a lot of people. And his home, his home was a social hub. And people came and, and Tyndale kept asking questions. He was inquisitive. He wanted to have theological discussions. And by 1522, he'd been formally charged with heresy. Now, we don't recommend that for you. But it does, does sometimes happen. He was also quitted. And that's important. But at this point in time, he discovered his life's vocation. His call was to translate Erasmus's Greek New Testament into English, just like Martin Luther had done with that text into German. Fox, uh, Fox recounts a story in a conversation. A, a scholar had come to their house and was, was there, and uh, the scholar says to Tyndale, we were better be without God's law than the popes. We'd better be without God's law than the popes. Master Tyndale, hearing this, answered him, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth a plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. This becomes the phrase which marks Tyndale. The boy who drives the plow will know more of the scripture than the scholar. Exactly when that happened, we don't know. What we do know is that Tyndale remained true to that first call that God 
placed on him. He loved God with his mind. He attended his Greek and Hebrew. This commitment to study made his later vocation as translator possible. Tyndale was a man who worked hard to acquire the technical skills that he needed, but he always remains independent and creative. Tyndale also took risks, and I think if there's something we'd like all of Tyndale to be marked by, it would be a community of risk takers. He debated standing for ideas which could have led, easily led to his death. But then he leaves the safety of Walsh's home, the security of it, and he decides that if he's going to translate, he needs a benefactor and somebody who can also protect him in that process. So he does what a good person does. He goes off to London, and he heads to the Bishop of London's house, uh, Cuthbert Tunstall, and he approaches Tunstall to be his benefactor. Tunstall, unfortunately, already had a, ho a house full of people, and he had no room for one more. So Tyndale now takes initiative. He doesn't say, okay, that's doors closed, that's it. He is an entrepreneur. He sets out to find a way to get that money that he's going to need, and he never forgets the plowboy. So Tyndale was committed to the laity. That's crucial. He was committed to the laity, so he didn't see this as some, his task as something which could only be accomplished within the institution of the church or the academy. He believed that the only way lay people could truly order their lives by Scripture was if they had the text in their own language. And there was one group that could make that happen, and that was the merchants. England was a nation of traders. English, foreign, they came, they, and traders traveled widely. They encountered ideas, they bought books. They were considered to be radical and dangerous people by everybody. The governments did not like merchants. But Protestantism will spread on the backs of merchants, just as the early church had spread on the backs of, of the merchants who traveled. They had interna international connections. They are anti-institutional. Not too many traders and merchants like the government. They're anti-clerical, they're mobile, and because they are so important to the economy, they have a relative amount of immunity. They can get away with stuff other people can't because we need them. In his years in London, Tyndale turned to the merchants. He stepped outside the safety of the institutions. He, he came under the patronage of a wealthy cloth merchant named, named Humphrey Monmouth and his friends, and they're going to provide him with the money so that he can translate and the networks to smuggle the books back into English, into England. So Tyndale prepares himself. He understands that simply knowing the language is not enough. So what does he do? He packs up and he heads to Wittenberg, 1524-25. He spends a year with Martin Luther and, and Philip Melanchthon learning how to translate. Do you understand how he, and this is a call for all of us, we need to be prepared. And Tyndale models that for us. He's, he's intentional about this. After a year there, he goes to Worms and settles there. And in 1526, the first copy of the English New Testament is in print. And within six months, there's 6,000 copies in England. So he turns outside the institutions. Producing and distributing the Bible, the New Testament in English, was illegal. But there's a group of people, merchants, who are committed to the cause. And so Humphrey Monmouth underwrites the whole ex, uh, the exercise and the organizes distribution. 
But also if we're going to obey God's call, we have to be persistent, and Tyndale models that for us. And as we think about Tyndale, we have to always remember that there were things which came upon him which if it was most of us, we'd say, well, that door's closed. Clearly, this is not God's call in my life. Uh, he must be wanting to move me into something else because in 1525, he goes to Cologne to have the New Testament printed. He's discovered, and he has to run. And all he's able to do is just grab the clothes, clothes on his back and a couple things. He has to leave all of his manuscripts, his translations behind. Can you imagine that when you're writing by candlelight with a quill? To leave everything? Start over? Another time, while translating the Pentateuch, he's sailing from Antwerp to Hamburg and the boat is, is shipwrecked. He lost his translations, his texts, his reference books. Has to start over. Tyndale strives for excellence. He's persistent, but he also is committed to excellence. The first New Testament was published in 1526. Stop and think. Can you imagine what it's like to hold the Bible in your hand for the first time? Most of us can't imagine that. It's too far out of our frame of reference. I was blessed with the opportunity to actually see that. When I was a little preschool boy in Nigeria, my father was involved in translating the New Testament. And one of those moments which is just indelibly etched in my mind is the lorry coming up in front of our house, these big crates unloaded, and all the church leaders were there, and they broke those crates open, and they took those Bari New Testaments out, and they held them. And I remember the joy in those people's faces as they held for the first time in their life the New Testament in their own language. What a wonderful gift I got in that, because it helps me understand something that's going on for William Tyndale as he brings the Bible into the, into the language and uh, into the hands of the people. So, Tyndale is committed to risk. Copies are smuggled in inside bales of cloth, down the Rhine, over to English ports, merchants distribute them, but the text has problems. First translation, first version, always a pro some problems, and he needs a new way to finance it. And so, the story goes like this. Edward Haller, who's not a fan of Tyndale at all, writes a chronicle. And he describes how Tyndale got the money to come up with the second edition. Bishop Tunstall, who didn't have room for Tyndale initially, decides he wants to get rid of all Tyndale's translations in England. And so this allows, actually, ironically, an opportunity for a new version. So it goes like this. The bishop enlists Augustine Packington to buy the copies of his work, no matter what the cost. Packington, being an innovative guy, simply heads over, finds Tyndale, and says, I'd like to buy all your Bibles. And the story goes like this. He says, who is the merchant, said Tyndale. The Bishop of London, said Packington. Oh, that's because he will burn them, said Tyndale. Yea, Mary, quoth Packington. I am the gladder, said Tyndale, for these two benefits shall come thereof. I shall get the money from him for these books to bring myself out of debt, and the whole world will cry out upon the burning of God's word. And the overplus of money that shall remain to me shall same once again and I trust the second will much, will much better be uh, like you than ever did the first. And so they bargain back and forth, and the bishop gets the money, gets the Bibles, Packington gets the thanks, and Tyndale gets the money. And in 1534, they come out with the second edition of the New Testament. And that's the, the, the frontispiece of, of uh, Matthew chapter 1. In 15, but Tyndale is always he's committed to excellence, so he has to be thinking and moving quickly. In 1526, back in Antwerp, they're producing inferior versions of his New Testament. 
So Tyndale packs up and he moves to Antwerp so he can actually have better control over what's going on. But Antwerp is also a very, very important city. It's the commercial center for Northern Europe and it has a free city status, so there's far less persecution uh, and uh, regulation in Antwerp than in other places. So while he's there, he's able to write some other books, and uh, in spite of everything, he and his, his co-translator, Miles Coverdale, are, are, are ultimately uh, forced to leave, and he has to flee, and this is when he goes up to Hamburg, and the ship is wrecked, and he loses all of his translations uh, on the Pentateuch. William Tyndale believed that Reformation happens, renewal of the church happens through Scripture. Could you go back one slide? Okay, do you see his right hand? Do you see where his finger is pointing? It's pointing to Scripture. So he's holding the Bible, but he's pointing to the, to the Scripture. And uh, so he's, he's wanting to work and, and continue to develop Scripture because Scripture is key. Reformation cannot happen without a good translation of Scripture. And so the second translation that comes out in 1534 is a completely re reworked version, and F.F. F. Bruce says it is not superficial a superficial revision. The whole work has been gone over in scrupulous detail, and nearly always the changes are for the better, reflecting mature judgment and feeling. He uses homely, homely Natural language. He never forgot the plowboy. And Tyndale's translation will dominate all subsequent translations. The King James Version, who some of you may have actually encountered, 90% uh, of what William Tyndale translated shows up intact in, in the King James Version. Philologically, he's careful, he's sound. He translates metanoia into repent, which had been do works of penance. It's also subversive. So William Tyndale trans translates presbuteros from priest to senior and then to elder. He translates ecclesia from church to congregation. He's making theological statements in his translation as well. But think about William Tyndale's influence. He is going to shape our language. Let there be light. Let there be light. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Let not your heart be troubled. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, he, but is risen. These phrases have shaped our faith. They're the phrases which give life to us as a people. And Tyndale's translation will also shape the English language moving forward. Did it work? In 1537, Edward Fox, Bishop of Hereford, addressing the, British House of, or the English House of Bishops, said, Make not yourself the laughingstock of the world. Light is sprung up, and it is scattering all the clouds. The lay people know the scriptures better than many of us. William Tyndale was a man of principle, but he was also open to change. And that's important for us. There are points where we have to recognize that we just might be wrong. In 1528, he wrote the great book, The Obedience of a Christian Man. And in that book, he argued for the divine right of kings. He calls on them to lead the Reformation. He says that we, we as citizens are bound by God to obey them. And I quote, for, he says this, He that judges the king judgeth God and damneth God's law and ordinance. The king is in this world without law 
and may at his lust do right or wrong and shall give account to God alone. King stands above all law. But then when Henry sets out to, to divorce Catherine, even though all the Protestants loved it, William Tyndale goes, no, that's wrong. That marriage is legal. It was consummated. You, have made a, you, you are wronging the laws of God. And it cost him dearly to say that. You didn't challenge Henry VIII lightly, but he changed his position and he marks the shift that Protestantism is going to have as we give up this belief that the king is somehow special. Tyndale also broke with, with, with uh, Martin Luther. He believed with Martin Luther on the justification by faith alone, but as he read the Pentateuch, as he read Deuteronomy, he began to realize that God is, this, all of this is important, and God is calling us to obey the moral law. We love our neighbor. We love God. We love our neighbor. How do we love our neighbor? We love our neighbor by doing and living out things which are talked about in Deuteronomy, Right? We love our neighbor. We are justified to our neighbor by living out the moral law. And so he begins to shift and find his own way. He's a man who is committed to reading text and letting text take him where it would, even though he would disagree with people he cared deeply about. Tyndale also reminds us of the price of following Christ. In 1535, Tyndale was living in the home of an English merchant in Antwerp. He was tricked by a young Englishman, Henry Philip, betrayed. Now, after 16 months in a dungeon near Brussels, he was sentenced to death. And Fox writes the account this way. After much reasoning, although he deserved no death, he was condemned by virtue of the emperor's decree made in assembly at Augsburg. He was there brought forth to the place of execution. He was tied to the stake and then strangled by the hangman and afterward consumed with fire in the town of Vilvorden, 1536, crying with a loud voice, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. There's always a cost to following Jesus. So what, what is in a name? What, when we call ourselves Tyndale, are we saying about our commitments as a school, faculty, staff, students? We're saying first and foremost that we are committed to Scripture as the foundation for faith and godly living. We're therefore committed to excellence and not to just loving God with heart, soul, and strength, but loving God with our mind as well. We are committed to being people who are not finally committed to institutions. And so we'll step outside safe places to get the Word of God into the hands of all, to empower the church to be about the work of God's kingdom. We are committed to quality preparation that makes possible the unexpected vocation. By taking the name Tyndale, we are committed to becoming risk-takers. By taking the name Tyndale, we are also committed to work with people who our society views with suspicion, the dangerous. In Tyndale's day, it was the merchants. In the 21st century, who is it? We as people of Tyndale need to understand and find out who those people are because we are committed to work with them. We are committed to theological principles, but we are also committed to discerning the times, to rethink the implications of the gospel in new situations. As a community called Tyndale, we are committed to humility. We stand under the word of God, and the word of God always exposes us. 
And when we say that our name is Tyndale, we acknowledge the cost of following Christ. Let's pray. May Christ go before us, leading us, guiding us, preparing the way. May Christ be beside us, a friend, walking with us, holding us up, keeping us to the path. May Christ be behind us, guarding us, protecting us from the attacks of the evil one. May Christ be beneath us, a rock of refuge, fortress. May God be above us, overshadowing us, pouring out his spirit upon us, filling us with his love, his joy, his peace, now and forevermore. Amen and amen.